Welcome, everyone, to Pod of the Valkyries. We're back with our third episode. I am one of your hostesses, Peachy Keenan, and I'm joined by my fellow hostesses, Amy Therese, coming to us from Sydney, Australia, and Inez Stepman, coming to us from the bowels of New York City. <laughs> Hi, ladies. Uh, Amy coming. Amy's voice coming to you from <laughs> across the, the, the trenches of the Twitter block. <laughs> yeah, it's called banned on Twitter. Imagine yeah, Amy getting banned on Twitter. What? I've touched all the grass. Um, I've been gone <laughs> for a month or so, and, and now I'm just getting massive FOMO, and I really want it back. <laughs> what do you touch? You, you touch the bush in Sydney, like we talked about last time, right? Not grass. <laughs> a lot uh, of bushes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a euphemism or what. But, um, that's, not, that's actually not, yeah. <laughs> that's not what I meant. Not really my thing, but... Um, if that's what you're into, I guess. Right. I don't right, know. Right. <laughs> well, in New York City, what do you touch? There's no grass. Touch some pavement. Oh, there's grass here. Hmm. It's fine. There's a really cute park two blocks away from me. Touch I'm not going to say where Touch is. a flagpole or like a giant dildo <laughs> installation sculpture <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually in Central Park this weekend and the light was so beautiful. Um it really is like that transition into fall where it's golden. It's just really, really nice. The light is so really, nice. really nice this time of year. Sorry, that's want- like a, a really gay way to start this podcast, but the light I is want- really nice. <laughs> I wonder what the light will look like in Central Park when it's filtering through all the fluttering um, homeless tents from the refugees that are about to be bussed into the sheet meta. You know, look what, nice. that, this is interesting. So there, I walked by the other day. Um, there's protest. So there was a, a big protest in front of the like Gracie mansion or something. Um, and then there, there were like guys with big Trump flags and stuff on the corner. And then there were like 150,000 cops there uh, to prevent the New York libs and the Trump lovers from, you know, Staten Island or whatever, Long Island from beating each other up um, over the, the migrant issue. But I haven't seen it yet. Like I haven't seen but I think it's mostly further uptown than where I live. But I have not encountered it yet. Yeah. They sent them to the nice areas first. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're putting them up in really nice hotels. Yeah. They're in the Upper West Side next to Lady Gaga's dad. I saw he like was protesting it right next to his restaurant. You know, truly the only two groups of people who are being put up in, in the fanciest of hotels right now in America are migrants and FEMA workers in Maui. Oh, yeah, they're all the at the uh, at the Fairmont Kealani in Maui, the Four Seasons, right? Yeah, while of course the people oh who gosh. lost their homes and potentially their family uh, due to horrendous government ideological incompetence are like still sleeping in cars or on their neighbors' couches. It's oh right, really sick. This is probably a little bit of a downer for our podcast, but. Inez did do some actual on-the-ground reporting on Maui, right, Inez? And you learned some shocking things. I don't know if you want to share them with us. It's really I, I actually incredible. I, I just talked to uh, a friend of that's, mine. That's more than I did, so. <laughs> yeah, who is do, who did the actual reporting, you know, flew out to Maui and um, Lahaina and talked to people. I mean, it, it's, it's just the level, the number of points um, – like turning points where this could have been averted or mitigated 
is like there's like half a dozen of them hmm. right so there were a ton of warnings about this exact fire risk um when the company invested something like $250,000 in fire prevention in the last several years versus millions for various green energy schemes or whatever. So that's like one point, but this was well known that it was the risk was bad. Um, the firefighter said the fire was contained. It obviously was not contained. Uh, the, the bureaucracy decided not to sound the tsunami alarm system because they thought that people would be too stupid Right. Like that, because because usually when they they put the tsunami um, warning on, people try to head for higher ground. But here the fire was coming from down the hill and people would be stupid enough to like run directly into the wall of smoke and fire if they put the tsunami alarm on. So they just didn't do that. Um, People did not get. If anything, they got like an eight or 10 minute warning Mm -hmm. that they needed to evacuate. A lot of people didn't get any any warning at all because the cell phone service was down. There's just like, there's, there's a dozen of these there. They, they did not, um, allow water to be diverted into the reservoirs to be used for fighting this fire by firefighters, uh, because it took the, the bureaucracy five hours because of questions about indigenous cultivation practices. I am not making this up, but diverting, water from indigenous cultivation or something when there was a wall of flame bearing down on families. Um, it's, it's, there's still no, um, accurate death count and we don't know how many of these potentially hundreds, uh, of deaths are children. Like it, it is like whole families burned alive. So there's no one to, in a lot of cases it was kids because the, the schools were, were not, um, in session because the winds were so high and the weather was so weird. Um, and so a lot of kids were home alone and they didn't know what to do. Oh, and then the, mo- the, the, the most obvious one is they barricaded the one road in and out. They barricaded it. And it seems like a lot of the people who survived were the ones who did the exact opposite of what the authorities told them and did not, wow. uh, like they had to like circumvent the, the barricade on the one road. I mean, the the military in Pearl Harbor was not sent, even though they're they're very close, like to help. There were people in the water for hours and hours and hours after because that was the only place they could go. So like people just ran into the water. And remember, it's like a storm, you know, 60 mile per hour winds. And people are just like hanging on to whatever they can out in the water in the smoke and like fire coming from the sky, basically. It just it 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 seemed like a living hell. And they're like I just listed just off the top of my head, like six or seven different ways in which this could have been averted. This is a huge scandal. Uh, right. But it, unfortunately for Hawaii, you know, they have, uh, they're dark blue, you know, they vote blue. And so they can't, they don't want to, they just need to cover it up at this point. If it was a red state, um, you know, oh, yeah, people well, be impeached. Yeah, of course. Like it, the media is complicit in this, obviously. I mean, I know that their their main job is making Joe Biden, like, I can't say that making Joe Biden look good because, like, that's seemingly impossible. But their main job is to, to try to spin everything as as well as possible for Joe Biden. But but even with that as a baseline, they've hit a new low because they're just not reporting on this. This is, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds of American lives lost and they're just not reporting on it. It is an enormous scandal from top to bottom. It, sorry. I mean, I don't want to be like a, a downer, but th- this is something I, I feel like we have mm-hmm. to keep on because – I mean, 
It's unreal. I mean, it's, it's half. Not, unreal. Yeah. It's like a third of the death count of 9-11, potentially. You know, yeah, it's a tiny village. It's so, it's such a strange sense every time one of these type of incidents happens where I find myself like sitting around, like, I don't know, I'm I'm very tempted to sort of lapse into this like very like, um, like grand language about how like significant this is and the fact that like barely anyone is talking about it or taking it seriously. I just, I get overwhelmed with this like fucked up sense of like contempt and disdain and like there's something very bizarre and eerie about the, about like just the way the media buries these things versus what it focuses on. Um, but oh, yeah, damn, I mean, it's, it's almost like, honestly, like Pravda is an improvement over the American media in some ways. Like, we're not as bad as the Soviet Union yeah. in other ways, of course, but everyone knew that Pravda was bullshit. Yeah, right? that's the difference. And I, I like, don't they're not even ashamed. Like, and, like, like yeah. the level of, like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound like, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to respond to the news in this kind of, like, emotivist manner, but, and, and just keep sitting here, like, calling it hypocrisy or whatever. It's not hypocrisy. It's, like, just this is, like, completely in line with who they are and what they do and what serves their interests. So, like, I'm not shocked by it in any way. But it is, like, I still never want to get um, comfortable with something like this just being the norm of, you know, a society that certainly that Australia very much emulates. Like, you can't allow this to become something that just, like, happens and nobody really cares. Like, I'm sorry, but how is it that a thousand people are missing? What the fuck? Is it a hundred dead or eleven hundred? How how can this still be such a vague number? I mean, I think we'll never know. It'll be like, you know, why did the uh why did Steven Paddock, you know, shoot whatever it was, 150 people in Vegas? Like, I don't know, who knows? You know, we're just moving on, look over there. But how do a thousand people go missing and nobody's like, do have we, are they looking for the other thousand people? Have they Just been found? Ash. Are we talking about eleven hundred people? So my understanding from Tony and from other reporting is that it is at this point unlikely that a large percentage of the people who are missing will be found alive. So, so we're yeah. talking about eleven hundred people incinerated. Something in something around a thousand people, and and the question is um and yeah obviously we, we hope it's fewer but it but it's it's definitely not 116 or whatever the number is right they're not gonna and, find many of them still alive now well they have cadaver dogs i mean i don't want to get morbid about it but they right they right but i'm a, saying still alive how many of them right. are still alive oh not, um like yeah now. i mean look never underestimate the sort of they say they find hundreds still living survivors we could still yeah. hope that some of them are are just like somewhere else, um, you know, without a phone or without any way to contact anyone. I mean, certainly, I'm sure a lot of the families are hoping, but it it's it's not looking good, and it's it is likely the death toll will be something around a thousand. And from what I hear from and read in the reporting, is that the locals their fear is not is the death toll you know, a hundred versus a thousand, they're pretty sure it's a thousand. It's what percentage of that thousand are children. And and some of them are worried that like up to half 
because basically the situation was the kids were all home from school. And if their parents were at work, especially in surrounding towns, and that's that's the other horrific thing. I mean, there was this this story reported by the Daily Mail and other places. Um, one of and and the post, one of these mothers, like they turned her back. They said there's nobody still in the town. It's been evacuated. And she found her son with the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I read that. Like the story you, reminds me of Was he alive? No, no. Both dead. Oh, that's so sad. I mean, everyone in the town who was stayed burned alive in there. They found baby bones in a car seat uh, in a car, you know. These uh, are American citizens. How is this not the biggest news story? I mean, obviously, it's because po- it's politically damaging. You know, that's that's the only that's the only reason. Um, Do you know what's not politically damaging? Admitting that you fucked up and doing everything possible to make sure you never do it again, because that actually shows you <sighs> that you have integrity. Integrity. I think. Doing this shit is so much more, quote unquote, politically damaging. Yeah. I, look, it would require I mean, us having leaders who were not retarded. Wait, can I just say one yeah, thing? Is that this story reminded me of the thing that people always say, like, you know, you're on your own, like, no one's coming to save you. And the thing I always tell my children, like, if you're ever in some chaotic disaster emergency situation, like, trust your gut instinct, you know? And there's always. two incidents that in recent memory, like have horrified me, which is first on 9-11. Remember that the people in the, in the first, the people in the tower that wasn't hit were told to, they all left their desks and they started heading down because the building next door was on fire. And they were told, no, no, no. Remember the loudspeaker, the, the workers at the, the port authority came on the loudspeaker and said, no, this building is safe. The fire is not in this building. Go return to your desks. And hundreds of people who had been evacuating because there was a fire, a plane went into the building next door, not their building. Hundreds of people obeyed and went back to their desks. And like five minutes later, they're all killed. And second story was on that um, ferry boat in Korea, in South Korea. Do you remember? I don't know, five or six years ago, there was a ferry boat in South Korea and it was filled with like 300, 400 Korean teenagers high school students who were on a like a some kind of field trip and the boat had taken on too much cargo and it was old and it was all this mismanagement it was corrupt all the whole thing you know and the boat started to list and the boat started to sink and the kids were told to stay where they were and not to move and there's a video that's like all these korean teenagers like like hiding under desks and tables terrified and the loudspeaker is saying, do not move. Do not leave. You are okay. Everything will be fine. Meanwhile, the ship is sinking and the captain and all his crew were getting off on a rowboat. And the ship sank and every single one of those children died. Do you guys remember that story? I and a couple, a, couple, a couple boys, yeah, I'll look up the name of the boat. A couple of the boys... You know, because in Korea, they, you know, the, the 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 tradition is like, you know, you obey authority, like you don't rebel. You know, Americans are kind of better at like saying "f you" to their teachers and stuff, but these Korean kids are so used to obeying that they disobeyed to the death. And just a few boys at the end were like, "No, I actually think they trusted their gut. They're like, I'm getting out of here," and like dove through the like portholes and somehow got out. There was only like a handful of survivors. It's really awful. And this story, the Lahaina, reminds me of that. You know, the police barricade. Well, the police must be. I guess there's a reason there's a barricade that kept them into the fi- in the fire. And so the moral is to people, you know, just trust your gut always. 
right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's okay to be a bit disagreeable, particularly when the stakes are high. Like, I think so much of what happens today is it's like, because a lot of our systems are incredibly complex and because you may just be one tiny node in one little branch of some much larger organization, um, you kind of assume that if something is done a certain way, it's done a certain way for a reason, such that even if it seems kind of silly or, you know, it's not doing, you know, if something seems off, a lot of people will assume that somebody else is like that it's okay that it's, it's fine. Like if nobody else has said anything, it can't possibly be that something's wrong. Like I don't want to kick up a fuss. I'm sure it's fine. And because like, you know, when you diffuse responsibility through these like incredibly horizontalist organizations where the buck doesn't actually stop with anyone, no one right. creates anything from start to finish. It's all just like tiny pieces in a much larger machine. You then look back um, after the fact and see, you know, um, half a dozen instances at which somebody simply saying, hang on, I think this isn't right, what's going on here, um, could have prevented massive tragedy yeah. further down the line. But so many of us are either um, uncomfortable with kicking up a fuss, assume that somebody else has it handled, um, right, or just don't give a shit. The boat and I the think as things get S more and more complicated – and they put like AI in place of humans and humans are doing these like often, you know, we've sort of in the past where um, sort of technical skill and expertise and craftsmanship um, were a part of certain things, that's a lot of that's been automated now. So you just have like operators, whereas the systems are doing all the like complex thinking. And so you sort of just train people to like not even understand the things that they're doing in any underlying way. So things can be like really fucked up and the people operating the systems have no idea because they don't understand how anything works. It's like well, kind of yeah, scary, I think. Nothing is, everything's designed by committee and by systems, you know, and there's no like director over it, right? So there's not like one oh, Lord, no. No. central vision that is then directing parts. Because I can imagine, right, like in a, in a, a well-functioning organization so let's say something like the military right you you really can't uh in, at least in the age of modern communications before that you really did need your commanders to innovate and uh independently but you, you know in, in a military operation you can't have like it might be that your unit is doing something that seems stupid to you but there is this like larger vision and you can't have like individual units evaluating in that way like if you want to design a, a strategy to win a battle for example uh but there but there isn't really that's the problem like the military has a hierarchical top-down like chain of command um but like we don't have that obviously what we have is a series of bureaucracies that completely abjure the idea of responsibility yeah, the right. incentives are the opposite of responsibility taking. Yeah. You get further by being a dumb shit who doesn't notice anything and just does what they're told. It's not even like dumb shit, although there are plenty of those. But like, it's that specific buck passing that's that's emblematic. Yeah, like don't cause trouble. Right? Like that Kafka esque circle. You don't create problems for people. On, you ignore right? shit. You're not creating problems. Happy days for everyone. Yeah, it's like it's like that uh, that emblematic bureaucratic experience of going to the DMV and like. The lady says, well, you don't have form D-22, 
And then you go and get form D22. And then she says, well, that's his problem over there. You got to come back on Thursday or whatever. To, like, there's no ultimate responsibility. And I do think, I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical. I think the the direct um, sort of takeaway from this fire is that there absolutely needs to be uh, some serious investigation and accountability. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm cynical enough to think that that's probably unlikely, but it, it really does rankle me, the injustice of it. Because forgetting, a, I understand that the politics is cynical, but I, I mean, it does still shock me that a thousand people, potentially a thousand Americans can die and it just is a blip that was in and yeah. out of the faster than like any one of these like single shooting incidents or, or Jacksonville or whatever. Like Jacksonville may get more media pages than a thousand Americans potentially burning to death because of ideological back like buck uh, ideological buck passing behavior. You know, and I, I'm still actually very shocked by that, but maybe I shouldn't be because the pinnacle of what our system produces is, you know, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, and right? I think like as we that's get the, like that's what our system, that's the quote unquote elite our system produces. Like those are the people who are running things and they are they have all the qualities for for bureaucracy. They don't have any of the qualities of actual like leadership or uh, you know, substance or or integrity. It's it's just it's sort of I, high IQ paper pushers with yeah. A, and I think as we get the system. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm just like oh, I'm, no, I'm genuinely okay. pissed off by this. It just like it does actually. I guess some things do still shock me that that this yeah. many Americans can die a horrible death in like hell on earth, and I think it's just a big shrug. Yeah, it should it should be shocking. I don't I think it's actually okay to um to reiterate that, like rather than letting it go unnoticed. Um there was also another thing that I was reading an article a little while back about you remember the submersible that had the the people die in it? Yeah. Yeah. There was a particular like um some kind of mechanical engine uh, not engineer, but some kind of person who was basically like um a lot more of a sort of lower middle class um, person who'd had some involvement with the submersible and he started alerting the sort of like um, white collar um, dickheads about these problems and rather than them saying oh wow that's really helpful we need to remedy these things rather than ignore them um, he was punished and turfed out and then uh, you know all of those problems that he'd been trying to alert them to um, were, were contributing factors in the in the um, burying of it and I think a lot of what we're going to start to see more and more of is um, these kind of like very basic like bread and butter issues that like with big things like, you know, um, fires, utilities, like all these Air like really. Airplanes. Yeah, like all these really massive like infrastructure and like basic social functioning type um, systems that are basically managed and run by these like um symbolic like upper upper middle class creative types who literally don't know how to do or build or make anything they don't understand how anything works at all um they just don't like a lot of these people just nothing has stakes for them like nothing's real it's all just like make-believe 
So it makes no difference. So they don't care. They don't think about the fact that this has like actual ramifications in the real world and it puts actual people at risk when you just like overlook things. And and I think that like it it I think we're making a big mistake to um to overlook that and to underestimate the impact that it could have because we are all under these like massive systems now. Like everything's increasingly centralized and you have these like increasingly fucking stupid people running everything. Yeah. Like it's, it's like everyone has a low stakes email job. Yeah. But, but there's actually things that need to get done. Yeah, exactly. It's like not everything is some dumbass startup uh, in, in the Silicon Valley that's like an app that, uh, you know, reminds you when to water your flowers or some, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not like, I'm, I'm not saying sometimes so those apps are, are fun and they can certainly make money or whatever, but there, there is some such a thing as having a real job with real consequences. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me there's, this is the, the one and only article from the bulwark I ever have or ever will recommend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this guy Addison Del Maestro he wrote this fantastic piece um, about this star-shaped pasta in the northeast This I, I'm going somewhere with this I swear um, <laughs> anyway. oh I remember this I remember this a little bit go ahead yeah there's like there's this star-shaped pasta that's really popular and it had good sales but they, they had to put it out of business like they basically went out of business and they stopped producing it and um, this guy Addison dug into why and he found out basically, yeah, the, the product itself um, was making decent money. But what had happened is all of the 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 dyes that had, um, you know, cut the pasta into the, the trademark shape, right? They had worn out. They'd all been built in like the 1970s and 80s. And then even the machines that make the dyes hmm. were all like, you know, at the end of their life and there was no potential replacement. And so they could not find a manufacturer for whom it was worth it, even though this pasta was selling. It's like the, the, the physical economy underlying it, the real stuff had degraded over the course of several decades without anyone actually knowing until all of a sudden they realized, wow, there's no cost effective way to produce this little product. And if it's, if it's happening with regard to a pasta, you can guarantee that it's happening with things that are much more important. And it's not just the physical things that are degrading. It's the the actual skills to be able to make things and to be able to run those machines and to understand what happens when they go wrong. Like this is, this is not knowledge that is self-perpetuating. It dies when it, it's not valuable right like when it's not immediately valuable in the economy to you know the vast majority of people it's not va- i shouldn't even say it's not valuable it's not valued it's interesting to me like i don't know how to really explain it but um perhaps it's i, I think my dad sort of impressed this on me um as a kid where i would ask him a question about like some discreet thing and then it used to annoy me at the time because his explanation would be far more like complex and necessary as i viewed it at the time but basically what he would try to do is help me understand like the underlying why of the thing that I've asked him to explain. And I, I tended to find as I got older that that was, um, that I tended to be like have intuitions towards that as well. Like if I could understand the way something worked, everything became much easier for me. And it's really interesting because as I've gotten older, like that curiosity has never quite gone away. So I'll ask all sorts of questions about all sorts of things 
And like, I find increasingly, well, especially like in high school and then even in like menial jobs going through college and stuff, like that, um, that tendency to want to know why and how things work and like what the underlying purpose is, because then I can, I can make sure it works better or I work better with it. You know what I mean? Um, so many people are just like totally allergic to that level of curiosity. Like they think you're up to something if you want to know why things are done a certain way or what the purpose is or whatever. Whereas to me, like if you're working with something and you have no fucking idea what its actual purpose is, you've just been given like a series of instructions to follow. What happens if something goes wrong? Like what are you supposed to do? It doesn't make sense to me. So I'd always sort of like try to understand the underlying premise. And I feel like the – like a sort of a level of curiosity um, and wanting to know why you're doing the things you're doing. It's just also something that would, that like needs to be cultivated. You know what I mean? Because if you just teach people to follow instructions and they never have any idea what the point of anything is, they're not going to know when something goes wrong and they're not even going to be like noticing indicators that it might be going wrong. Yeah, there's been some uh, some surveys that show that people are like uh, that workers are totally disengaged compared to before the pandemic um, right. as well. And I think this all goes together with this sort of we don't really produce much in a substantive way. You know, a lot of people have email jobs that don't have any real stakes uh, and but therefore don't have any real pride in it either. Like, yeah, you if you know your job is bullshit, <laughs> you're not it's demoralizing to feel like it, it's it's actually not, at least in my experience, limited experience. Right. Um, the jobs that I was the most disconnected from or didn't care about were not the ones that were the most, quote unquote, menial because um, the menial ones were fine. Like I took a certain kind of pride in, you know, yeah. producing X good hamburgers a day or whatever yeah, totally. it was. And I didn't have to think about it when I was not on the job. Right. Those were not the worst jobs to me. The, the worst jobs were like the amorphous ones where you're just bored most of the time. And like, you don't really care whether, cause you don't even see the widget going out the door. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a very, it feels very useless and ephemeral and you wonder like why you're wasting your time there as opposed to doing something enjoyable for yourself. Whereas I never felt that way about some of the quote unquote menial jobs I had because it was always like I was always busy and I could see the product of my busyness totally you know, underneath my hand. So uh, I'm not going to say like it was glorious or anything like that, but it was it was like there was a certain kind of satisfaction in being like, okay, like here's what I have done for the last, you know, eight hours. Here's the number of, you know, uh, bobcat sandwiches that I have made. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's an integrity to it. You're doing something to start to finish and completing it and then you're done. And it's like, there's like like something whole in it. Done, like, and looking that you have done a thing, a productive thing with the last eight hours and then you get to actually enjoy your leisure time. Whereas I feel like a lot of what is passes as gainful employment in our economy now is uh, both has amorphous hours, you know, um, in the sense that it's, you know, you might work from home no, on and off. Yeah. It's, there's not really a strong uh, time off either. And it's, so it's hard to enjoy your time off because you never mentally disconnect from what you're doing, but also there's not like, 
an incredible amount of, of I mean, to be clear, I, I'm very lucky. I, I really enjoy my job, but I have worked jobs that are in the sort of white collar space that um, I didn't feel that way about. And I don't know, I feel like there's a lot more of those kinds of jobs going around now and and everyone just feels like it's low stakes. And then all of a sudden, sometimes it is high stakes. And I can't think of anything more emblematic of the mentality than this, this Lahaina email you know, you get an email from the water company saying, hey, can we divert water for this raging fire? And then you ha- you take five hours to respond to it. And y- and meanwhile, you work on what you usually do, which is checking against, you know, <laughs> some program that has priority on water use, right? How-, how disconnected from reality do you have to be to have that kind of response to that sort of a message, right? Culture of death. Yeah, I think a lot of these people are just like fucking off the planet. Like, like I think that they're, they're like disconnected from reality. Like, how do you like? Sh- like, uh, to me, that's just too retarded. Like, how is it even possible? I think a lot of people go through life literally like spiritually dead behind the eyes. Like, how how do you do, like how do you respond to something like that by checking whether it meets your like green energy? Blah blah blah. How's that your response? What's wrong with you? It's just the culture of death, which has sort of taken over where, you know, the the quote environment or the quote climate, these sort of like yeah. non-human, non-alive entities yeah, uh, take priority over actual living, breathing humans. And that's yes. just, that's totally. what we're up against, you know, and like you have to, you know, the best way for Maui to increase its ESG score, you know, is to eliminate these, you know, eliminate some carbon and the carbon they want to eliminate is you, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you and your environmentally unfriendly wooden buildings, you know, we, we, you know, there's all those, all that, all those stories about how they want Maui to be this like completely sustainable, you know, whatever hydrogen powered city or whatever, whatever the plan was. And the people are just maybe, you know, inconveniently in the way. And so getting rid of them is like, well, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, well, move on. There's just like a lack of empathy. There's no, Everything has an angle, you know, every, every tragedy, you know, what did, what did Rahm Emanuel say? It's so true. Never let a crisis go to waste. Um, they're not going to let this go to waste. They'll turn it into some, you know, green new deal or something. But in the process, like the actual, the, the toll, the scale, because these deaths can't benefit anyone, it really is just like a calculation, uh, you know, it, like Barack Obama, who is quote Hawaiian or whatever even he's quiet have you noticed D- really saying nothing much like where's Barack you th- you'd think Barack Obama would be like on the ground in Maui hugging people you know it was really weird it was really weird to me because on like day one or two it was getting like massive headline news in Australia such that um I made a point of m- messaging one of the anons who I know lives over there and I wasn't sure even which island he lived on but just to say like I hope you know you and your family are okay and staying safe and everything and he was uh really gracious and pleasantly surprised and it's just I don't know it's so weird to me that like that the level of just total who gives a shit from like the entire like American establishment it seems that like even the Australian news had 
this as like a bigger thing than Americans do. Because it seemed like a huge deal to me. I don't know. And no one was talking about it. It's a real black pill. It really, mm. you know, I live I live somewhere where any minute now, you know, the entire city, all the infrastructure, all the water infrastructure will be destroyed at any minute with a giant earthquake. You know, we kind of live with that kind of in the back of our heads constantly. And like the main water that feeds Southern California comes from like cro- literally crosses the San Andreas Fault. And like these cap concrete, whatever things, whatever they're called, aqueducts. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a water engineer, but like the minute there's a big earthquake and 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 you know and the the continental U- United States plate goes you know north 20 feet, <laughs> everything breaks, and um, we're gonna have an absolute hell on our hands. And the idea that these are the same people in charge here, it's like L.A. is Maui times a billion in terms of cronyism and everyone's related to each other. And, you know, Sacramento is run by everyone's second cousin. It's sort of like a Chicano uh, mafia runs California <laughs> state and city politics. No, it's, it's true. They're all cousins. They're all related. They run the big stuff here in California. You got to get the okay if you want to like do some big, you know, project in California. Same with Maui. You know, they're all kind of cousins. They're, they're, it's all political favors who's in charge. And we we don't have the people who are like, you know, the guy, who, the plumber who can come in and like, he knows just what to do. The old grizzled guy, you know. With the yeah, I feel like on some neck. level, the like especially these lefty types who think that everything that actually exists or used to exist is like evil and problematic and whatever else. Um, I feel like on some level, whether it be implicit or explicit, I I think they don't mind shit being completely destroyed um, because then they, like they see it as an opportunity as you alluded to earlier. And then like, I, I don't know. I feel like this was also apparent throughout 2020. Like, when they burn down a place, the people who profit from it are all their developer mates. You get a bunch of NGOs come in and like flood the zone and do oh, all yeah. this like social engineering management bullshit, creating new political constituencies that will be good little foot soldiers for them. Like all this shit is actually like profitable both politically and then like economically for exactly the demonic psychos that are causing this to happen in the first place and so i feel like we're all doomed (laughs) well we're not doomed but like the incentives as they currently exist are for this to not just continue but to like be exacerbated and i think that like we need to be like really serious and like no bullshit about the fact that like i don't that's why i think like trump is actually the best in terms of just like you are actually better off just saying climate change is a chinese hoax it's fake than ever talking about any of the scientific crap or any of that crap. You have to just not entertain it because it's just a weapon. I don't care whether the world is heating a little bit. That's not what this is. That's not the political purpose any of that crap serves. The idea is that they want to fire people who they don't like, um, destroy the jobs and industries of people who they think are bad people, and then employ a bunch of incompetent morons who are going to make everything worse. Like that's the purpose of all the lefts, like, little political weapons and I think like I don't know you have to just sort of not entertain it to some degree and you have to like um bolster against it rather than like waiting for it to happen and then like actually getting into like debates about details with these freaks like these people don't want to debate they want to burn your house down 
You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Sorry if that was a bit off the topic. Well, yeah, and they want to they want to get rid of the kids. I mean, it is a sort of a little bit of a war on kids in a way. I mean, uh, I don't think. I mean, I think what happened in Maui. I don't think they set those fires like on purpose, literally, to kill the children. But you know, Ned and I were talking a little bit earlier um, about why there are so many fat young kids. You know, why are children? And these are the people who have to like you know lead the way at some point. But you look around and at American children and they just seem like, you know, uh oh, <laughs> what's going on with these kids? What are they eating? What are they feeding them? They seem like, are they just, is it just, is it just screen time? Are they on estrogen pills? Like, why are they so, you know, kind of chubby and just dysgenic looking? Yeah. I mean, like, so uh, when there was all that controversy about using the word groomer, right? Um, I, I was kind of against, not against using it as a meme, because I, I don't care who's offended by it, but I do think there's like some untruth in, in, in that I feel like the ideology only incidentally covers for actual pedophiles who want to diddle kids. Like the main grooming that's going on is to make kids fat, like miserable activists who reflect back the very tenuous and warped worldview of these adults. Like it, it's like, yeah, they using... want fat little regime foot soldiers who are completely disposable yeah. and worthless that's, and have no, no meaningful social bonds with anyone, no self-respect. Right. Yeah. Like you're miserable. You're fat. You're, you like don't know what it is to be, uh, you know, not medicated and relatively healthy and like, in the sunshine, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know. Yeah, so that you're just a desperate blob ready for the regime to pour <laughs> meaning into you with the right. um, never ending litany of current things. Like, each one of those fucking ridiculous um, spectacles will provide your life some temporary, like, jolt of meaning for a hot minute. And they yeah, will like, reproduce. Because you, there's, nothing, because there's nothing solid underneath you. There's no long-lasting relationships where people actually, like, like you for you. Like, I, I don't mean to get sappy, but, like, one of the things that I object to the most about all of, and even as a, quote, even when I was on the left, I was fighting with them the whole time because I find it so repugnant. It's, like, I think it's a very deliberate thing with the, like, identity politics um, in terms of, like, the actual purpose is to objectify people, make them think of themselves as only having value insofar as they provide, um, you know, insofar as they are, like, um, symbolic and useful to some group in some way, as opposed to being integrated selves that people like because they like them. You know what I mean? Like, well, it, it encourages you to think of yourself only as like a particular type, and then if your particular type, um, you know, if the if the representatives of your particular category type find what you're saying to be disagreeable or find you to be objectionable in some way, well, then you can be turfed out of your type, and then you have no one. But it's like, yeah, well, if you invest your self worth and your self definition. Like if you let these like very narrow, stupid categories be like how you define yourself or your identity, that's such a like um, vulnerable and unstable basis on which to like rest your self-conceit. It makes you very vulnerable. Yeah, I mean like so there are different ways 
for people to find some kind of internal identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like we have this hyper identification with with some groups, right? Because those are the mm-hmm. only exterior relationships that are actually endorsed by the culture and by the regime. Whereas actually most people for throughout history define themselves by exterior relationships, right? Like you thought about that's the thing the to me. Identity is relational. It's relational. Yeah. It has to be. It's just it can it, never like, just be right. I'm yeah. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter, right? Yes, um, precisely. That's yeah. how people answer those questions. Or I am a member of this tribe, or I am a member of this nation, or I'm you know in in uh, monotheistic times, right? I, I'm a child of of God. Um, Whereas now it's just family. They're all exterior relations, and then I feel like it actually drives people insane to yeah. tell them define yourself. Like like it, it, I think that's where this whole therapeutic. Yeah, sort of yeah, understanding little, yeah. of the world comes in, and you tell people, "Well, look into your soul, look into your your center, which is obviously stable and not in any way, um, you know, imperfect or or shifting hour to hour, minute to minute." Right? This like they we we act as though self conception or the self is this just ironclad thing that only needs to be discovered by the pulling away of limitations and constraints, but in reality. Limitations and constraints are what relationships are. Well, they would enable you to form any kind of life, any kind of identity. And and any stable self-conception that actually is not insanity-making, like this kind of shifting Olympics of of which, you know, oppressed tribe you're in, right? Um, The the kind of self-conception stable over time and actually gives people a reason to live is yeah. mostly exterior relationships and relationships are always limiting, right? Like the, the, the idea that you, you, and maybe it goes to the way we think about romantic relationships as well today, but relationships are always limiting. They're, they're both exclusionary and limiting. They have to be otherwise, like if, if you're friends with everybody or if you're in love with everybody, right? You, you actually love no one. Yeah. Because and, you have to have concrete duties and be bound to the like, um, committed in some sense bound to another person and so by definition that means that there that that is going to come with limitations to the particularities of that person well you two narcissistic freaks who always do exactly what they feel like no matter like every transitory feeling that crosses their minds cannot have a relationship like they can't have a meaningful relationship with one another but now we've we've that's literally the model for what a person is in our culture and we're surprised that everyone's lonely and atomized yeah this is something i found really galling on the left it's just like the totalizing inability of the vast majority of these like lefty activist types to um put anything as transcendent beyond like just um just transitory like political crap like i don't think i think many of them most of them like are totally incapable like they don't think that there's anything like transcendent outside like to me there are certain things that are um infinitely more important than like partisan crap like who cares um but a lot of these people literally like throw anyone and anything under the bus um for these like a stupid meaningless shit that has no actual consequences like in their day-to-day life but to them like the fetishistic like 
aspect of this stuff is like actually meaning making and it's more meaningful for them to um discard people who are um non-compliant than it is to maintain relationships with people over the long term the number of people who brag about cutting off their family over some of this stuff is unbelievable like the number of people who not only do it but then are so proud of it that they talk about like oh i don't talk to my mom anymore you know or i don't i i am getting a divorce with my husband because he, he wouldn't wear a mask enough for me or whatever like the number of people who he's who a keeper act- that's exactly the husband you need someone who doesn't take your bullshit yeah right <laughs> No, or like people who who turned in their relatives for going to January 6th, like not for murdering anyone. Those people should be put on an island and left there. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to need a bigger island, Amy. Yeah. Put all all the people we don't like. Oh my God. Why don't you come here? And like, and they could come to Australia, Australians with you, and then we'll yeah. we'll institute the yeah. penal colony, and we'll send we'll, all of us. I love to it. Their relatives. <laughs> I love it. I'm in Australia for real. Australia for real. Is, uh, yeah, we can make it a make it a, a, a an American penal colony this time. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think uh, we before we wrap up this episode, I think we do have to talk just to do a hard break here. I think we do have to talk about something slightly more uplifting, which is Trump's mugshot. Mm. The mugshot heard around the world. Or as I was calling him, mugshotty. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great. Like, it's really great energy. I think it really conveys, like, the fierceness and ferociousness of, like, the energy behind him. And it was good to show, like... um, um, total resolve, like not not bend in any way. He did a I great just hope job. My blonde highlights look as good as his, and when I have my bug shot, <laughs> like this glowing blonde, <laughs> like <laughs> gorgeous. Yeah, it is unfathomable to me that some little yokel buttfuck nowhere, like district attorney or whatever the fuck they're called. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna. I, I'll try. I need to stop swearing. Let you me can work start close. again. It is unfathomable to me that some tiny, like, um, tiny, like, prosecutor from some tiny town with a name like Fanny Willis, which is the stupidest name I've ever heard, can, like, arrest the president. I don't get it. Like, what is going on? This whole thing is so hilarious. Like, how is, I'm sorry, but as much, like, I love Trump. I think he's great. Like, I think it's really important to not bend on any of this shit in any way. But, like, how is this real? It feels so farcical. I mean, it's 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 very it's real. Happening. But I mean, like, like how are the libs taking it seriously? Yeah, Got it's it? it's the Rubicon. It's funny. So two things. One, we've crossed the Rubicon here in terms of of, but we've done it so many times in the last six months. That, yeah, that it's like what more can we say that's serious about it, right? And it's then there's so the nutty. Inter- like, how is this happening? It's so crazy. It's insane. But then there's also. And I, this is really, I think, since 2020, there's really been this quality to American life where it's like simultaneously apocalyptic and completely larpy and ridiculous. And part of that's Trump, but like it's not just Trump. It's it's. I just do you remember the? I remember comparing some of the mugshots of like people who were in the Capitol on January 6th 
and then like the Antifa rioters in 2020. And it's like, how how is it that these people, like one, all have blue hair and, and nose rings or whatever. And then there was the guy with the horns from the Capitol who's clearly not mentally stable, right? I'm like, how how are these people like pushing monumental historical episodes of our politics it's just like, <laughs> it's really hard to take seriously like somebody dangerous have, ch- have fallen that's true it's like at least i want my villains to you know even if they're villains i want them to have some gravitas you know like so true our super villains are so cheap and tacky well, I think part of it also is that the left is so pathologically humorless that actually often um the like often it would often the antidote will be some character who brings levity to a situation because it acts as is like um antidote or contrast in the same way as like Trump being actually hilarious is a huge part of his power. Um I think that like like the left being totally incapable of ever laughing at themselves or like calming down or not being self-serious, totalizing moral scolds means that like it will be, yeah, like your weird guy with the horns or whatever that has to be the sort of necessary um, countervailing motif or whatever, if that makes any sense. It's it's so, it legitimately, I have actually lulled a bunch of times at this this mug shop. By the way, I went out and I bought the New York Post just to like keep it for <laughs> Yeah, that's the case. You know, um, no, but it's because clearly the point of this, right? They've, they've, this is the fourth indictment. They have, you know, like he said in that hilarious, also hilarious post where he was like, what am I going to flee the country? Am I giant plane that says Trump on the side of it? <laughs> like there's no <laughs> a mugshot of the most photographed man in the country, right? Like it's, it, everyone knows who he is. It's just like, it's a complete farce. He, nobody's worried about him being a flight risk. Right. Um, and it was done with the intent to humiliate, but the, the mugshot is so good. And Trump is so good at like branding and aesthetics that every piece that was intended to humiliate him, as soon as you put that picture on it, it's like, it, it gets ruined. The entire point yeah, they of can't stop owning themselves. Just got yeah. completely ruined by how <laughs> good and funny this mugshot is. And he raised like $8 million in the like few hours afterwards. What will happen? I mean, what just, I know we have to wrap up in a second, but if the trial is supposedly Miss Fanny has it in March or whatever, and if it's like a speedy trial, just like zoop, boom, boom, and he's convicted, which he will be, like, will he be sitting in prison on election day? Like, how does it actually work? Like, I don't, I just can't Eugene believe they're actually going to go that far. Eugene Debs friend from prison like a hundred years ago. I imagine if he was convicted and, um, but appeals were pending, he could probably get home released. Theoretically. Right. It's, it's It'll be a constitutional crisis because he can't yeah. pardon himself in Georgia. Right. So, yeah, that's why they did this so that it would be, yeah. And and it's not even the governor there. It's like a board of of people. I, I don't really know. You know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll become very important who they are. I don't know. Um, but yeah, like what? It's, it's going to be a constitutional crisis for the country. I mean, what if Trump wins and he's sitting in prison? You know, 
are they gonna set up the white house in a georgia prison like there's no southern it'll just be the southern white house the hotlanta white house I think what a lot of this shows us is sort of the opposite of what we were talking about before, how like in these complex systems where if you just have everyone like asleep at the wheel, no one's taking particular responsibility, whatever, whatever. I think there's like the the like way that the libs and the Soros prosecutors, etc., um quite effectively weaponized that to create basically like to to basically like where there used to be just like a totally like fairly relatively neutral or at least not crazy um, um, uh, like you know administrators of justice across the country they literally looked at that system and went oh wow we can just like create little pockets where we like institute radical change because nobody's manning the, like, no one's going to stop us. Like, no one's taking responsibility. But that means we can if we want to, and we can divert these entire systems to, like, actually political weapons for our purposes. You know what I mean? Like, on the one hand, you, the alternative, like, on the one hand, there's a lot of people just doing nothing, no one taking responsibility. But then on the other hand, you have these, like, activist freaks who are like, yeah, we'll take responsibility, we'll take responsibility, all right? And, like, they'll divert what should have been like a system for everybody with like, you know, um, shared, you know, goals to the betterment of American society at large. They're just like, no, we can weaponize these little, we can weaponize these to our own ends and no one will stop us. It's like the flip side of it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess life goes on uh, even in the post divide and, and I know life is going on in Peachy's house right now. So uh <laughs> <laughs> where where the kids are gonna break into her podcast? Yeah, the, na- the natives are restless. They're gonna they're gonna burn my burn my, she my has little an podcast room down. Uh, <laughs> my, my, <laughs> my bosses are cracking the whip. Uh, we're gonna roll. Thank you, ladies, so much. It was a delight as always, and we'll be back next time with another episode. I'll talk to you, ladies, soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.